It's Wednesday, April 26th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. Ahead this morning, the main stage season for the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas ends Saturday. Paul Haas, the musical director and conductor of the symphony, explains why he's excited about this concert titled Evoking Folklore. And we have an opening date for the U.S. Marshals Museum in Fort Smith. Ben Johnson, the president and CEO of the museum, will tell us what happens between now and July 1st. First on the program, last week the Northwest Arkansas Council and their NWA Recycles program hosted a pitch competition for local entrepreneurs focused on rethinking trash. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth has this report. In a crowded event room at the Botanical Garden of the Ozarks last Friday, seven new businesses competed for $5,000 in prize money. Each entrant was evaluated by a panel of experts on 80 different measures of sustainability, waste management, and recycling. And this, this, uh, this decision came down to a single point out of 80. Fayetteville-based SIEV Technologies took first place and $4,000 for their project turning waste into fuel and chemical products, while the Siloam Springs Carbon Chicken Project, which converts sawdust and poultry litter into soil enrichment, took the $1,000 second place prize. Dan Holtmeyer is the recycling program manager for the Northwest Arkansas Council. He helped put on the Rethinking Trash event and says the idea was to support new sustainable businesses and bring together regional stakeholders in the evolving landscape of waste management. There's also a huge role for uh, small businesses and private businesses to, to, take, to take those recycling programs and stretch them further to, to make them more convenient or more accessible or uh, to make them more effective in some ways. You know, a good example is Fayetteville. The city of Fayetteville has done a, a, a ton of work on their composting program, you know, for food waste and yard waste. They're, they're kind of the biggest game in the region when it comes to that. But it's just for within their city limits, of, obviously. Um, and it's been small businesses like Food Loops and um, Food Recycling Solutions that have been able to um, kind of bring that service, that ability to compost food waste uh, to residents throughout northwest arkansas um so so i so what I, i'm hoping to achieve is kind of highlight those businesses like food loops and the others that have already jumped into this space and are already making a, a difference and an impact and try to inspire all others to um you know other budding entrepreneurs and other entrepreneurial organizations to to look in that direction and kind of follow their lead holtmeyer says overall when it comes to recycling northwest arkansas does a pretty good job and we're up to about 45,000 tons of recyclable materials that are collected and processed and, and sent on to be reused. Uh, so that's a, I mean, that's a big, that's a big amount. I mean, it's too big to even imagine. Uh, it, it, it's a giant number. Still, he admits there are some limitations. He says for many residents, the knowledge gap of what can and can't be recycled, as well as correct sorting methods, is a major problem. Uh, for example, there's there's a, a real issue with contamination, people throwing in trash and just the wrong things with their recycling bins, and that all has to be sorted out, and that makes recycling more difficult and more expensive and all that. He also says there are infrastructure issues in our region. For instance, rural communities may not have residential recycling collection services, and the same goes for many apartment complexes. There are also restrictions on the types of materials that can be recycled, like plastic containers other than jugs and bottles, or other steel and metal products. 
And that's why Holtmeyer says he decided to put together an event engaging entrepreneurs specifically, because he believes those businesses can help fill some of the gaps. A lot of the recycling that everyone's familiar with would, would not be happening without private businesses. You know, in most cases, the, the truck that comes up to your house to pick up the recycling bin is a private company. And that, I mean, everything starts with an entrepreneur. So kind of along those similar lines where, you know, there are some small businesses around here who are making it possible to recycle from uh, from an apartment, like a multifamily setting. Small businesses that are that are making use of of um, unusual materials or materials that aren't accepted in most recycling programs, things like textiles, and that's one one aspect of it. For recycling to work, there has to be someone at the end of the line who will take that material and put it to some use, and that someone, in in most cases, is is an entrepreneur, is a business that has figured out you know a, a tactic, a method, or a use for for some waste stream, for some waste material. Stacy Lopez participated in the pitch competition with a group of fellow students from the University of Arkansas. Their idea was to collect, refurbish, and then resell used items that students leave behind in campus dormitories each year when they return home for the summer. So one thing that we talked about uh, during our presentation was that right now the University of Arkansas is sitting at a 10% diversion rate whereas the national average is 45%. And the Office of Sustainability has a goal of 90%. So there's a huge gap between where we're trying to be and where we are now, and that's kind of the impact of this idea. So right now the university is needing a lot of investment and help to bring that diversion rate up. James Jovicic, who was also part of the university group, says while they didn't win the competition, the opportunity to present and network with other entrepreneurs and stakeholders working in the sector was just as valuable. It does also kind of feel like a whirlwind of people coming over and being like, we really like your idea, we want to help you get some um, information or anything like that, so it's a really cool experience right now. And Fabian Whittle also participated with her company, Amaya Consulting, which helps business owners develop sustainable practices. She says time and money are the biggest barriers for small businesses who want to be environmentally conscious. One of the things I recognized while I was the director of sustainability for Packard Outdoor Center is that there is not enough hours in the day to do all the things you need to do to be a sustainable business. And, you know, I was gifted the opportunity to do that research for them, but most business owners don't have somebody that is in that role to take charge of what, how to make a sustainable business. Um, so the time is a huge factor. And then when I first started doing this, it was a big, you know, it was not very easy to find reasonably priced um, business supplies that were sustainable. It was a market that was unreachable at the time. And then as time moved on, though, it became more approachable, more economically feasible. Um, and I just, I think that that's going to continue to grow. I think it's going to become more cost effective. But again, with that time piece of people just not even knowing where to start, I think that's a big barrier. But she says resources like this that streamline and incentivize sustainability will help spark structural changes in the region. I really believe that Northwest Arkansas can catalyst the rest of the country, just really spur them into the idea that sustainability doesn't have to be difficult and it can be for everyone. Um, 
The NWA Recycles is such an incredible resource and I was so excited whenever Dan came on board and started just developing this stuff for our region. It's huge and having a resource um, that lets you know what is divertible in your community is a big deal. And Holtmeyer says beyond being an environmental investment, recycling in particular is an economic investment. A 2020 report from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency showed that recycling and reuse activities brought in $38 billion in wages and $5 billion in tax revenue. And Holtmeyer says a robust recycling program also helps attract new residents. You know, part of the reason the council, the Northwest Arkansas Council, jumped into this topic is because we hear a lot from people moving to the region coming from other parts of the country that um, you know like recycling isn't as easy as it is where I just came from or you know like it doesn't work the same way there is a sense at least among some residents that, that things could be better that they work better in other places NWA Recycles publishes a yearly recycling report and collects a database of recycling options and rules for residents and business owners Holtmeyer says the most important step right now is connecting people with solutions to those with the resources. And so, you know, we at the council, we can't tell anybody what to do and we can't boss anybody around. But, but I can try to bring everyone in the same room and at least be familiar with how each other works and, and learn together and see what we would all have in common, like goals we have in common, priorities. And so that's, that's just what I've been chipping away at uh, for the last couple of years. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. And Daniel puts together his reports for us inside the Karen Taha News Studio. We're almost out of April, and that means the deadline for students entering the NPR Student Podcast Challenge is close. This is the challenge for middle school and high school students. Entries must be submitted by end of day Friday. A complete guide to making better podcasts and the rules for the NPR Podcast Challenge can be found at npr.org. Just follow the tabs toward the podcast challenge. Also there, you can find a half dozen or so entries that editors at NPR have liked so far. The Northwest Arkansas Tech Summit Series, dedicated to artificial intelligence, continues tomorrow evening at Bentonville Community Church from 5 to 7. Admission, $25 per person. Speakers are scheduled to discuss several topics, including an introduction to AI and its capabilities, and best practices for integrating AI. More information about tomorrow night's event can be found at nwatechsummit.com slash AI series. And artificial intelligence will probably come up as a topic of discussion at the fourth annual Rogers New Technology High School's Career and Internships Fair which is Friday from 9 until 2.30 at the school. The school says this year it's extending the event's time frame, and it's invited industry partners to participate actively, engaging with more than 650 learners who will be attending. The goal? To help students discover the numerous opportunities available to them and how to pursue them. New Tech High School located at 2922 South 1st Street in Rogers. Little Wing Productions presents Dave Mason coming to the City Auditorium in Eureka Springs Thursday, July 27th at 7.30 p.m. Reserve tickets go on sale this Friday at 10 a.m. at tickets.thundertix.com. 
The Artisphere Festival Orchestra returns to Walton Arts Center with two main stage concerts under the baton of Maestro Corrado Rivera's, featuring more than 90 musicians from around the world. Presenting works by Brahms and Beethoven May 16th and Respighi's Roman Trilogy on May 20th. Tickets and more at artisphererefestival.org. Later on today's Ozarks, we have an opening date for the United States Marshals Museum in Fort Smith. The installation team is still uh, ongoing. That's going to go um, probably for another six, seven weeks. Um, we need to hire a bunch of people. We need to tell the world. Uh, and then, you know, get used to the idea of being a functioning entity Um eight hours a day, seven days a week. A conversation with Ben Johnson, the president and CEO of the museum, in about eight minutes on today's show. Erica Westerman is a professor of biological sciences at the U of A. An entomologist, her research focuses on understanding how organisms perceive and interact with their environment and how variations in these interactions facilitate diversity. A recent grant will support her research on the role of genetics and ambient light in shaping the visual sensitivity and behavior of butterflies. I use butterflies to understand behavior because butterflies, I just really think, the best group of animals to work with. They're incredibly speciose, so many species. The Lepidoptera, which is butterflies and moths, are second only to beetles in terms of number of species. And when I started my PhD, I got the opportunity to kind of accidentally start working with butterflies and just completely fell in love with the system. You can hear more in the latest edition of Short Talks from the Hill, a research podcast from the University of Arkansas. Listen at KUAF.com, at arkansasresearch.uark.edu, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson is making it official. He's seeking the Republican Party nomination for president. The Benton County native made his formal declaration this morning in Bentonville. We'll have much more about the announcement on tomorrow's edition of Ozarks at Large. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders is hosting town halls across Arkansas to discuss the rollout of recently passed education legislation. Josie Lenora with our partner station KUAR in Little Rock has more. Sanders was in Texarkana on Tuesday to promote Arkansas Learns, a wide-sweeping education overhaul passed by the majority Republican legislature last month. The law gives parents public voucher money to help fund their children's private, religious, or homeschool education. Learns has received backlash from advocates who believe state dollars should stay in public schools. Joined by Republican State Senator Breanne Davis and Education Secretary Jacob Oliva, the governor repeated her concern over Arkansas students below average literacy rates. And right now in the state of Arkansas, only 35% of Arkansas third graders are reading at or above a third grade reading level. To me, that's an unacceptable number. The highest performing county we have anywhere in the state of Arkansas is 46%. Sanders was vague on the specific plans to address literacy, but said the law will deploy over 100 reading coaches across the state. Critics have questioned how schools, which currently aren't subject to state testing requirements, will measure accountability when they begin receiving public funds. The governor says questions like that will hopefully be cleared up by several working groups, on which she says over 1,200 people have already applied to serve. In Little Rock, I'm Josie Lenora. Sales of medical marijuana in Arkansas continue to rise. The Arkansas Department of Finance and Administration reports sales in the first quarter of 2023 grew by more than 7% compared to the same time last year. Total sales for the first three months of the year were more than $70 million, representing sales of nearly 14,000 pounds. 
Fayetteville-based photographer Andrew Kilgore is receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award today at the Governor's Arts Awards Ceremony in Little Rock. Kilgore has lived in Arkansas for 50 years, and his signature black-and-white portraits have documented the people of the state, especially in northwest Arkansas. Also being honored at today's event are Kelly and Marty Sutherth of Bentonville. They're receiving the Patron Award. Independent Bookstore Day is being celebrated locally Saturday. Yesterday, we highlighted two friends' books in Bentonville. Today, we hear from Pearl's Books in Fayetteville, owned by Daniel and Lee Jordan. Daniel says he's excited about not only celebrating the store... But we're really celebrating the customers in this community that we're a part of, too. The value that, that shopping locally brings, and that wouldn't be possible. We wouldn't be here without our customers, so... Pearls will have giveaways and prizes available while supplies last, including some exclusive independent bookstore day swag, advanced reading copies of books, and more. Lee says at 10 a.m., Mr. Troy will be leading songs in Storytime for Children, and in the afternoon, illustrator Zeke Pena will be signing prints of his illustrations and offering original artwork for sale. And then from 3 to 6, we're going to have some puppies in the store from Big Paws of the Ozarks that are adoptable. More about Pearl's Books and Independent Bookstore Day can be found at their Facebook, Instagram, or at pearlsbooks.com. One of the most famous names in musical instruments is establishing a retail presence in northwest Arkansas. Steinway & Sons will formally open Steinway Piano Gallery NWA later this week. The location on North Steel Boulevard in Fayetteville will host a grand opening Friday. It's the second Steinway Gallery to be located in Arkansas. The first opened earlier in Little Rock. The Razorback baseball team will be back in Baum Stadium tomorrow night after losing four consecutive games away from home. Last night, Arkansas lost to Missouri State in Springfield 8-4. The Razorbacks will host Texas A&M for three games beginning tomorrow night. And the Northwest Arkansas Naturals are in San Antonio this week. Last night, the Nats posted an 8-3 win to even the record at 8-8. KUAF Public Radio and Stephen Cook, host of Arkansongs, present a night celebrating Arkansongs' 25th anniversary of highlighting Arkansas's pivotal role in American music. That's this Friday, April 28th, beginning at 6 p.m. at The Medium in Springdale. It will include a Q&A about Arkansongs, heard every Monday on Ozarks at Large, with host Stephen Cook and KUAF Vinyl Hour host Lee Wood. That's followed by a screening of Cook's film Jump, The Louis Jordan Story. This Friday's event is free and open to all. For more information, arkansongs.org. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. It's been more than 15 years since it was announced the United States Marshals Museum would be located in Fort Smith. In the years since, there's been fundraising, designs, groundbreaking, and construction. And yesterday, museum officials set an opening date, July 1st. We reached the president and CEO of the United States Marshals Museum, Ben Johnson, by Zoom yesterday to ask about the journey to the opening that takes place in just about 10 weeks. Great. It is exciting and terrifying uh, and everything all at the same time. We've been talking about it for a while now. And um, even up till this morning, there was a group text saying, all right, are we all still ready? Are we all still good? So we're uh, we're excited, but um, we got a lot of work left. What T's had to be crossed, I's dotted to know that, okay, this is the date? Well, um, as anybody who's peripherally aware of this project knows we've had our fair share of bumps in the road over the last 16 years and our our main hurdle um, over the last uh, eight nine months since i've been involved with the project is just making sure 
from a installation um, and creative side that all of the many, many, many moving parts across the country and even up into Canada were all on track uh, to be installed, uh, created, uh, that all of the different vendors, we could get the lights we want. We can do the, you know, the wiring and, and just all the stuff that has been a, a challenge globally. Those were all the things that we needed to check off before we uh, could say, yep, we're going to open. Yeah, I know when you think about uh, the Great Recession, a pandemic, other things that have happened. I mean, you're right. This has not been a straight route uh, from the awarding of the site to the opening. Yeah. And, and, you know, a project of this scale, which I think a lot of folks um, don't always fully appreciate uh, doing something uh, at this level, $50 million project, uh, national, international level museum quality um, without any direct government funding. The state of Arkansas has been incredibly supportive over the last 15 years, but we don't get federal funding uh, in any way. We're not a federal museum. We're not a state museum. We're not a local, you know, we're not we're not um, a line item on somebody's budget. So it's been a challenge, but uh, really we're at the, the tail end uh, and just excited to finally share this with the world. So what, nine, ten weeks till the doors open? What is left for you to do? I mean, you got to let people know past this announcement, but I'm sure there are other things that yeah. happen in there. Yeah, so the team, um, the installation team is still uh, ongoing. That's going to go um, probably for another six, seven weeks. Um, we need to hire a bunch of people. We need to tell the world. Uh, and then, you know, get used to the idea of being a functioning entity um, eight hours a day, seven days a week, 360 days a year, uh, and just be, be emotionally prepared for what that means, um, particularly for some folks that have been in, involved in this for years, if not decades, that transition is going to be a, a, a big, um, a big deal. It, it's, it's basically a whole new business model. So it'll be fun to figure out exactly, uh, how all this, sh uh, shakes out over the next couple of months. You've got to allow yourself some grace though, right? I mean, Oh, oh, we're all about okay. grace. We're, we give it to ourselves. We give it to other people. We uh, People have given it to us for uh, a decade and a half. And, um, you know, uh, there will be hurdles. There will be mistakes. You know, there will be challenges that we don't foresee that'll come up. Um, it's always fun um, trying to, to find um, high quality uh, folks who want to work and do things uh, our way um, and, and provide the best experience for folks possible. So we're, we're, we're doing it with um, a positive attitude and a good sense of humor and know that stuff's just going to happen. We just have to make the best of it and try our best. I don't want you to give away any secrets or mention anything you don't want to yet, but do you have the idea of what that first day is going to look like with ceremony or guests or anything like that? Yeah, so it looks like at this point, th there are so many moving parts that we realize that having a ceremonial opening and a public opening on the same day would probably be just a little challenging. So what it sounds like we're going to do, um, we are in touch with 
just more people than you can imagine, um, from the director of the marshal service to the entire congressional delegation, um, state representatives, um, corporate entities who've supported us, board members, former board member, all of these hundreds and hundreds of people, um, and we'll have a ceremonial event that that'll likely happen in the days leading up to July 1st um, to get as many of them there as possible. So that that way on July 1st, it genuinely is the first time that we're going to be able to welcome folks in and we can just open the doors and let the general public in and just let them wrap their arms around um, everything that this team has um, put their heart and soul into for the last 15 years. Finally, let me think. I think July 1st is a Tuesday. No. What July 1st is a Saturday. A Saturday. The 4th of July is a, a Tuesday. Tuesday. So you've got this yeah. big weekend right there. You know, why try to do it anything easy? It hasn't been easy so far. So we figure we're just going to go go big from the very beginning. We're going to do some, some groups in June, um, kind of invitation only with some of our folks, just to kind of let the team practice, uh, make sure the software all works, the hardware, the cash registers, the doors, the windows, you know, everything works right. Um, and then, uh, yeah, uh, rip the Band-Aid off and July 1, here we go. I love it. Uh, congratulations on, on announcing the date. I'm, I'm sure we'll hear more about it as we get closer. Try to get some rest in the next 10 weeks, and uh, we look forward to it. Yeah, rest won't happen. Um, phone's been blowing up for the last three hours, and it probably won't stop. And, you know, but that's why we get into this. That's what these folks have been working for for the last 15 years. And the marshal service is so happy, and the retired deputies are so happy that this is finally going to happen. And we just want everybody across Arkansas, across the country, and around the world to be excited and proud about what, what we've been able to do and uh, I, I genuinely believe folks are going to be blown away by the quality of, of the experience. Ben Johnson is the president and CEO of the United States Marshals Museum in Fort Smith. Museum officials announced yesterday that the museum will open to the public on July 1st. We talked yesterday by Zoom. The organization Feeding America ranks Arkansas as the second most food insecure state in the United States. What does it look like to have a better understanding of where our food comes from, and what does food justice mean? Terry Spruce is a doctoral student studying these questions, and he's the guest on the latest episode of Undisciplined, the podcast produced in conjunction with KUAF and Ozarks at Large and the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas and hosted by Dr. Karee Banton. Here's an excerpt from the latest full episode released today. I did grow up in a food secure home. Food was something that I didn't look at as being without, uh, but at the same time, I didn't really understand what it meant to be without food. I didn't have a lot of people that I could identify to say, oh, they don't have food. So food was always something that was familiar to me. Food represented love and care and affection and family. Um, I associated food uh, with being around people that I care about, and I never saw that you know there was a lack of food. I don't think it was until maybe high school or maybe yeah maybe high school or college when I realized that there are people who are without food and they have no way to get food and it's a difficulty to to acquire food on a daily basis not necessarily just to have in your refrigerator you know every week but just day by day trying to understand where the next meal is coming from not three meals a day but just one meal a day and that's when I realized that 
you know, there are more problems on different levels, and it doesn't necessarily mean the person is poor, because uh, I've observed rich people who have no food, and it sometimes is that they can't acquire food, they don't understand what healthy food is, That that's kind of what led me down the path to understand all food is not good, and I, it made me understand and question more about what is food, what is nutrition, and I think that's just my brain and the way in which I learned to go down these different rabbit holes to understand, you know, what the true meaning and true value of things are, not necessarily what somebody's definition is. So how did you get into looking at the environment, sustainability, food justice, and entering into this program here at the University of Arkansas? Very good question. So I started with understanding that I wanted my family to stay together. I needed community. And in order to do that, you know, people had to have homes to live in. And that was the largest reason why I think, you know, most of my family members tend to, uh, you know, go other places. They have better job opportunities. You know, they have a house of their own. They don't have to live with other family members. And I thought it made more sense to create a space where we could all collectively live uh, in the same area. Uh, even though every family has you know, issues, the biggest thing is to have family close means that you have a support system. And I realized in this collective community I needed to build, there was more than just a house. There was more than just you know, electricity. We had to have running water. We had to be able to depend on the food that we're growing. You know, all these different variables made me understand that one of the biggest components was food. People had to have energy to keep moving and keep going. So... I looked at food as that factor that needed to be uh, represented the most. That's what made me decide to go into food security and food resiliency is because it's something that is lacking across the globe. And it's something that if we don't do something about in the next few years, there are going to be a lot more hungry people than we see today. And this program at the University of Arkansas uh, the environmental dynamics programs, it combines these types of food systems, these natural systems and climate factors, uh, as well as the way that humans adapt to these factors and these different challenges. So that's what drew me here. And I found a family or a home here that allows me to look into my research and find solutions and not just talk about it. The idea of theorizing just it doesn't do it for me. I need to be able to be hands-on, be practical. I like place-based learning. So this program has given me the opportunity to do such. I'm someone who, Terrius, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in cornfields and soybean fields. And I think there's a lot of assumptions folks may have when it comes to agriculture and farming here in the United States. What has been your experience with kind of dispelling some of those ideas around uh, what it looks like to farm and to farm for food here in the U.S.? So I definitely realize that there's a difference between farming and growing food for production for a profit. I realized that just because people are farmers, it does not mean that they are food secure. Oh right, sure, yeah. I mean, where I grew up, where I grew up, the corn that we grew in our fields was for wasn't, export. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't meant for me to eat. It wasn't sweet corn. It was corn <laughs> right. that was going to get ground down for cows or for livestock. Right. The same for the soybeans. We weren't eating those as like edamame. <laughs> yeah. We were. We were. You know, making that into other soy products. Mm-hmm. That's right. 
and you, you hit it right on the head. And I think that uh, one of the biggest, I guess, misconceptions I had is that, hey, if people are growing food, they're good. You know, they have food. It wasn't until I was able to engage with you know, different families that grew on large scales but had no food to eat. Not until the harvest is sold to, do they have money to go to the grocery store and buy food. There's no exchange of crops between farmers. There's none of that. There is, hey, this is what we, we have for, uh, for sale. This is what this whole purpose is. We are selling this. We're not consuming any of this. And like you said, a lot of times the crops that they have is not for the purpose of human consumption. A lot of times it's made just for feed. You know, so we have a problem with allocation of where these crops go. A lot of times people are food insecure because everyone's growing around them, but the issue is it's allocated for another purpose other than to feed these people. So I've realized that, you know, you have to look at every situation on a case-by-case basis. There is no one way. And, you know, my goal is to be able to assess these situations as they come individually, not to look at it as a broad whole. Everybody's different. Hearing you talk about that in terms of food insecurity and what our agricultural patterns tell us, right? I'm thinking, as with many things, right, this goes back to slavery and how that structured our economy. I'm thinking about as a Jamaican and as a country that largely has to import food. And this is a part of that colonial system that was, here are these islands in the Caribbean that we're going to grow sugarcane on, on a wide scale. And then we're going to ship in food because we need all of the arable land to grow sugarcane. And it was enslaved Africans because the slaveholders were unable to provide all of their food needs. They were given these little, very small parcels of land to create their provision grounds. And they started growing little food stuff for their own, you know, use in the house, right? And for bartering amongst themselves, right? And creating this alternative economy. And in some cases, it took off like with bananas before United Fruit came in and wiped that out and took it to Latin America. So I'm I'm wanting to ask Tarius, how can we connect the legacy of slavery to these current discussions, not only of food insecurity, but also environmental issues and, you know, environmentalism in African-American communities around land, food, and all of that kind of stuff. So I think that, you know, this is, you know, a challenging question. I think it's going to take several decades for us to get to the point that we need to be sustainable and we need to be balanced. But I think that in these communities, I like to call it the gun. I actually you know, took that term from KRS-One. Uh, the gun has to be put back into these communities. And it's through God, through the universe, and through nature. And it's like that alignment and that balance. Once you have that focus and that center, I think that we will be able to understand more about how these problems, they exist on many different scales. So being able to solve these issues, we have to have a different understanding, a more uh, well-rounded understanding, because these issues, they affect affect everyone and everything that we do. So I think the only way we can get back there is to be able to be grounded back into the nature of what things are and un- have a better understanding. And that way we can see how the systems move and we can understand how things grow, how things are work together in harmony. And that's the way we bring back the balance. 
And I think without those principles, I think that we can't continue to live lives by rules. We have to understand that we have to go back to principles of living. And once we can get there, I think it will allow us to take care of a lot of these problems quicker. I think that's what the first step has to be for us to collectively come together and build on principles, the same uniting principles. I'm not certain what that will be. I think that, you know, it's going to take a lot of work for us to come to the table, a lot of us equitably to come to the table and be able to speak our voice and create uh, our pathways with principles. I think that's how we get there first. Dr. Karee Banton spoke with Terry Spruce, a doctoral student studying food insecurity, for the latest episode of the Undisciplined Podcast. You can hear the entire episode at KUAF.com, or you can get the podcast from any major podcast distributor. Undisciplined is a co-production of Ozarks at Large, the African and African-American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas, and KUAF. KUAF is supported by Dr. Kathleen Wong, a psychiatrist providing infusion therapy for treatment of depression and anxiety disorders. Following NIMH protocol, studies show ketamine infusion therapy can reduce suicidal ideation and is an effective alternative when other treatments fail. drkathleenwong.com for more information. KUAF is giving away tickets to the 2023 Spaceberry Music Festival, May 11th through the 13th, on the farm in Eureka Springs. This three-day festival of music, fireworks, and camping welcomes Eureka Strings, Deep Sequence, Green Acres, and more. Winners announced on Friday, May 5th during Ozarks at Large. KUAF.com for registration and more information. This is Ozarks at Large with me in the Anthony Susan Hoy News Studios, Paul Haas, musical conductor, the conductor and musical director of Symphony of Northwest Arkansas Sona. Welcome back. Thank you, Kyle. Great to be here with you. All right. April 29th, Evoking Folklore. This is the last concert of the regular season. Correct. Yeah, we go beyond that, but it's this is the last main stage concert. Yeah. And quite a concert it will be. Quite a concert it will be. Um, let's first briefly talk about the title, Evoking Folklore. Yeah. Uh, this, is, this is a concert where... We're delving into ideas of of what folk music is and and what art music is and how the two uh, can can exist simultaneously, but then the one really influencing and pollinating the other. Uh, where where you know throughout history, people like Brahms and Dvorak they really took their inspiration. Then later on. Uh, well, anyway, you get the idea. It's throughout time, even Beethoven and, and Mozart, they, they all uh, received inspiration from, well, what was kind of like pop music at the right. time. This is uh, folk music. And so that continues through to today. Uh, and the pieces on this program are, are emblematic of that, let's say. And what I love about this program is that it might be, um, for some, some of the music might be unfamiliar, but it's all grounded in familiarity. And I'm thinking of the pianist that will be playing, not a stranger to Northwest Arkansas. Mm -mm. It's in memory of Sarah Sharp, a great friend of so many organizations in Northwest Arkansas. Absolutely. No, this is, this is, this is not going to be, <laughs> this is going to be the opposite of that. It will be, it will be an inclusive and it'll, it, it'll sound familiar even if some of the titles are not. Right. Well, let's talk about uh, one of the pieces that Angela Chang will be performing. Sure. So Defaya's uh, Nights in the Gardens of Spain. Uh, a, let's just call it a late romantic <laughs> impressionist masterpiece. That's funny. You, you think about 
uh, well, one uh, could be accused of thinking of of uh, the best Spanish music as having been written by French composers. <laughs> you, I mean, you think of you think of Bizet writing Carmen, uh, and uh, you know Debussy writing Iberia. Uh, there, there, there are so so many examples of you know Bolero. There's, mm-hmm. there's, mm-hmm. It's, there's there, there, there is that um, thought running rampant amongst musicians and lovers of classical music. But Defy is 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 the bucker of that trend, really. Uh, he, al- although he did spend formative year- formative years of his life in France, uh, just before he wrote this piece, actually, uh, he stayed really true to the idea of Spanish person writing Spanish music. Right. This is this is very uh, native to to him. Uh, and so this this piece started out as as a a, a suite of, of 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 piano music, uh, which he then very intelligently and uh, in, in an inspired way uh, reorchestrated into into orchestra plus piano soloist. Angela Cheng was was a favorite of Sarah Sharp's, mm-hmm. and so when we were talking, we, we were in conversations with uh, Frank and the, the whole the whole Sharp family about what would be a, a, a wonderful way to 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 honor Sarah's memory. Angela just just jumped to the top of the list, and and be, and and also this idea of the defia. Uh, this 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 program would have been something that that we thought that Sarah would just just would have loved. Tell me what you, a little bit about the first piece that's on the program. Sure, yeah, Jared Tate uh, is a member of the Chickasaw Nation uh, in Oklahoma. Uh, I think he was born in Norman, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, so until recently, there hasn't been a whole lot of indigenous music, well, classical music, let's say, written by indigenous composers. There's been plenty of, uh, you know, you think back to Dvorak New World Symphony. There, there, there are instances of Eurocentric mm-hmm. traditions borrowing from this, uh, like we were talking about before. Uh, but it's only recently that we've had indigenous writers writing music for orchestras and then orchestras composing those. And so Jared Tate is one of these. He's been, he's, he's a prolific writer of film, commercial music, but also uh, uh, orchestral music. He's a pianist, he's a composer. Uh, anyway, so he, he's, he's become quite, you know, quote unquote, a thing mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, of late. And it's really incredible to see. Anyway, I've, I've conducted this piece before uh, a couple of times, and it is uh, it is fun. I think that that that's the main uh, descriptor uh, uh, to conduct, to play, to listen to. 
it's uh, it's all about a trickster rabbit. Ooh, I love this. Right. So in in Chickasaw uh, uh, myth, you you've got this this trickster rabbit character who's uh, you know part devil, part friend a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. it's just sort of this this uh, this impish. Uh, you know, someone you want to be on the lookout for. <laughs> anyway, so th- this piece uh, has a lot of a lot of humor in it, a lot of uh, excitement. And it has this gorgeous, tranquil intersection where maybe Chuck Fee is, is the name of this trickster rabbit. Maybe he's thinking up some new tricks. I'm not <laughs> really sure. But then we end fast again. Uh, yeah. So uh, looking forward to that. Absolutely. It's, um, it's, it's one of my favorite discoveries of, of, of the last, I don't know, couple of years. Fantastic. And then that, that will start the program, Evoking Folklore, on April 29th. Mm-hmm. Aaron Copeland. Symphony Aaron number Copeland, three. Symphony mean, Number ending. Three. Yeah, yeah. So this this piece is uh, epic, as you say. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really uh, in his output, it occupies the space between, like, right at the at this sort of crucial intersection between his early, very accessible ballets, right? Right. Think Appalachian Spring, uh, Rodeo, uh, but then between that and then his more austere. Uh, kind of formalist writing that he transitioned to later on in his life, and so this is this is at once the last of the 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 accessible, and and the beginning of the austere, and it's it's a magical place for us as listeners, and so we get all of the, you know the 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 Copeland sound, this American sound. Uh, but we get this formal rigor and and logic that allows it to be large scale, right? And he he said that he didn't consciously borrow any folk music for this. Uh, on the other hand, it sounds like he did, right? It's it's all him. But it's all American. Evoking Folklore, April 29th, Walnut Center, Fayetteville. You can find out more. Get tickets at uh, sonomusic.org. And then I, I'm sure you already know, and we'll talk about this later, what's going to happen in 23-24 season. Absolutely. Let's, let's, uh, let's, yeah, let's yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely talk about that in, a, in an extended session. Yes. Paul Haas, thank you so much. Thank you, Kyle. Pleasure to be here. On the first episode of the newest podcast from KUAF and the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council, The Beloved Community, University of Arkansas Chancellor Dr. Charles Robinson speaks with host Lindsay Leverett about his work at the University of Arkansas and about his commitment to the land-grant mission of the University of Arkansas to help create a better future for individuals and society as a whole. Thinking about how, again, in everything that we do, what those who are least among us in terms of their resources, what impact it would have on them, I think that is 
in line with Dr. King and his dream and, and, and the responsibility we have as campus leaders to build this beloved community. Listen and subscribe to the Beloved Community Podcast for free at KUAF.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. Tomorrow on Ozarks, former Governor Asa Hutchinson's hat is in the ring. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore is in Bentonville today. He'll report more about the announcement on tomorrow's show. Plus, Lincoln Lake, a few miles north of the city of Lincoln in western Washington County, will soon be perpetually protected under a Northwest Arkansas Regional Land Trust Conservation Recreation Easement. 90 acres of water in it, and uh, it's a horseshoe shape, so there's a lot of real craggy shoreline. It's very similar to Devil's Den's geography with water in it. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Prolick has that story for us on tomorrow's show at noon and 7 p.m. You can also find our show and individual stories at KUAF.com. And you can keep up easily and for free with everything we do here by signing up for the Ozarks at Large newsletter at KUAF.com. Every weekday morning, you'll receive a list of our stories and links to those stories so you can listen on your schedule and share through social media and email. The sign-up for the free Ozarks at Large newsletter is at KUAF.com. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents Diego Rivera's America, the first major exhibition focused solely on the Mexican artist in over 20 years. It features his works, digital projections of his murals, and three major paintings by Frida Kahlo. On view now through July 31st. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. The University of Arkansas at Fort Smith offers students more than a diploma. UAFS offers students a resume. More information regarding a career-driven education is available at uafs.edu slash join the pride. Little Wing Productions presents Dave Mason coming to the City Auditorium in Eureka Springs Thursday, July 27th at 7.30 p.m. Reserve tickets go on sale this Friday at 10 a.m. at tickets.thundertix.com A bit of radio shop talk now. Today, NPR announced Tanya Mosley will be joining Fresh Air as that program's co-host beginning next month. You're probably familiar with Tanya Mosley and her work on Here and Now. Some of those interviews have actually been heard on Fresh Air. According to a note from NPR this morning, nothing is going to change about Terry Gross's role as host and executive producer. With Tanya joining Fresh Air, NPR says it is well positioned for a transition that Dave Davies, who we've heard on Fresh Air for years, a transition that Dave Davies has been planning. He'll be stepping back from his role as interviewer and fill-in host following years of work on the program. He actually continued that work on the show for months longer than he originally planned. NPR says it will still be able to feature some of Dave Davies' interviews from time to time in the future on Fresh Air. Coming up soon, we'll hear Terry Gross interview Tanya Mosley as she gets ready for this new role. And when Terry Gross goes on vacation, it will be Terry Mosley who is sitting in. You can hear Fresh Air Every weekday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF, right before Ozarks Large. And then you can hear the weekend wrap-up of Fresh Air Saturday mornings at 11 and Sunday evenings at 6 on KUAF.
Mic check one, two. This is Ryan Versi, KUAF's underwriting director. KUAF now produces eight podcasts with important topics ranging from mental health to cryptocurrency with more than 20,000 downloads a month. You can reach these listeners with information about your business or organization by sponsoring a podcast like Ozarks at Large, Resilient Black Women, Undisciplined, or others. To learn more about sponsoring a podcast on KUAF, email me at ryan at KUAF.com. That's R-Y-A-N at KUAF.com. Musicians the Ozark Highballers, as well as Piracoco, will be performing a free concert at the Duke Joint in the Pryor Center. That's located on the Fayetteville Downtown Square. Saturday, it begins at 5.30. The Ozark Highballers, string band specializing in old-time traditions from the 20s and 30s. You've heard them on Ozarks at Large. Piracoco, who has been a featured performer at a KUAF Lunch Hour, known for blending her background in Latin culture and her Southern upbringing, she was one of the first Lunch Hour performers, actually. This concert is a local tie-in previewing Ozarks, Faces, and Facets of a Region. That's going to be a feature program at this summer's Smithsonian Folklife Festival taking place in Washington, D.C. All this is free at the Pryor Center at the Juke Joint. That's the um, the the sort of, uh, you know, reconstituted blues edifice that's there inside the Pryor Center on the main floor. It's all Saturday beginning at 530. We're going to learn more about all of that. The concert and the Ozarks Faces and Facets of a Region and the Juke Joint on tomorrow's edition of Ozarks at Large at noon and 7. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Lake Sequoia. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors to our program today included Daniel Carruth, Matthew Moore, Karee Banton, and Josie Lenora. Ryan Versi is our underwriting director. You can reach him with any questions you might have about underwriting with KUAF at ryan at KUAF.com. You can also uh, continue your support of public radio by going to supportkuaf.com at any time of day. If you'd like to become a sustaining member of KUAF and give a bit each month, you can do that as well at supportkuaf.com. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Daryl's most recent CD is titled Still Here. You can find that music wherever you find music online. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellams. Thanks so much for being with us. We're back with you tomorrow at noon and 7. And if you ever miss an edition of Ozarks at Large, we make it very easy to hear the program. We're available as a free podcast wherever you're already getting podcasts. You can go to OzarksAtLarge.com and find archived shows. We also have some archived on the KUAF app for iPhone and iPad. Have a great rest of your Wednesday.